Well, should we talk about love? It's my experience that love is central to awakening. And it feels more and more like this the farther I go in my practice. Like the Beatles saying, all you need is love. And it really feels more and more true all the time to me. Uh, but what is love? I, I don't think this word that we use to point to this deep experience is adequate. Uh, we can have all sorts of different kinds of love and only one word to cover it. So we could say, ooh, I love that salad. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one, that's one way to say love. Or I'd love to take that trip to Greece. Or we use it for, for romance. And we use it the same way for uh, a relationship of one year as a relationship of 75 years. They seem very different, those two things. I, I think our language is just impoverished about how to talk about love. And what we've translated as loving kindness in, uh, from the Pali, the Sanskrit, um, shorthand just love, means something very specific. And so that's what I want to talk about, is the meaning of love as it relates to our practice. Uh, In Buddhism, there are the Brahma Viharas. And that's that's translated as uh, immeasurable minds, or sometimes the heavenly abodes. And these are four different kinds of mind that are vastly different from our normal sense of what mind is. And I'll just kind of go through the four of these here so you have a sense, but I'm only going to talk about one of them today. So the first one is metta, and that's what we translate as loving kindness. And what I mean, what metta means is universal goodwill to everything, everyone, all the time. So you can see already that's different from I love that salad. You know, that's a that's partial. This metta, it's not partial at all. It's universal. So that's the first Brahma Vihara. The second one is karuna or compassion. And compassion is the action one takes based on love. So the loving kindness is the is the goodwill and the and the Karuna or the compassion is the action that is driven by that. The third one, mudita, we translate that as sympathetic joy or empathetic joy. It's seeing others' joy as your own. It's easy to see our own joy as our own, but this is this is the mind that sees others' joy as our own. No distinction between self and other in that. And then the last one, upeksha, or equanimity, which we could translate as impartiality of mind and action. 
complete impartiality. So these Brahma Viharas, they predate Buddhism. The Buddha didn't invent them. They were part of the wisdom tradition that he inherited. And they're different than any other mind states that we have. There's uh, a list that circulates around. It's got something like 500 different mind states that humans have. And it's exhaustive, you know, and uh, Jack Cornfield likes to start to read these to people and he never seems to get past the A's. There's so many of them. But you know, you, you recognize what these, what, these, um, what these normal mind states are like. We call them afflictive mind states in Buddhist psychology. Anger, envy, boredom, judgment, you know, all these kinds of things that the normal minds that we, that we generate. <clears throat> And Brahma-viharas are very different from these kind of mind states. So these afflictive mind states, they're personal. You know, I'm angry. And they're limited. I can only stay angry for so long. It comes and it goes. But the Brahma-viharas, they are immeasurable. They are vast, bottomless, inexhaustible, and they also are not personal. They belong to us all. So it's not like I have loving kindness. I just manifest loving kindness. It's the same loving kindness that you have. So there's real difference between the Brahma Viharas, these heavenly abodes or immeasurable minds and our usual afflictive mind states. With our, with our afflictive mind states, we can get better or worse at them. You know, we can tame our anger. We can uh, get more angry. But with the Brahma Viharas, they don't need to be developed or polished at all. You already have loving kindness. You already have that mind. Fully developed. Doesn't get any better. Doesn't get any worse. You don't have to go be a better person to have it. You already have it. You're born with it. But the afflictive mind states uh, are things that we can develop. An another distinction between these two kinds of mind states is we know that these immeasurable minds, these Brahma Viharas are present because joy comes along with them. It's a great joy to have loving kindness. It's a great joy to act with compassion. It's a great joy to see others' joy. It's a great joy to be equanimous in the moment. So that there, there's a little, it's like a little sidecar that comes with these, with these uh, immeasurable minds. These immeasurable minds are facets of awakened mind. You know, like a jewel, a diamond is cut with facets on it. It's the same diamond that you're looking at from any angle. But from different angles, you see different facets of it. Well, that's what these are. These are ways of talking about the awakened mind that has no concepts that apply to it. But we do apply some concepts to it. We call this aspect of it, this facet of it, 
loving kindness. We call this facet of it compassion. We call this facet of it equanimity. But it's all the same awakened mind. This is your birthright. You already have these, and you already know these. I'm just reminding you of what you already know. You don't have to go out and develop these. Uh, there's a story from the Buddha's life that points to this. Uh, as, you, as you probably know from the Buddha's life, he was born this prince. His father was a king of this small kingdom in India. And when he was a young boy, he would go out with his father on these ceremonial rounds that his father would do, uh, ceremonies and things like that that you know, politicians do today. And, and Siddhartha, the young Buddha, was along with him one time when he was young, maybe five or six. And he decided that he would just sit down uh, in this field by a tree and wait for his dad to do his thing. And while he was sitting there, he was overcome by this sense of peace, this sense of being completely content in the moment, of being aware of what was happening, of not wanting to change anything to get to somewhere else. He had this experience of indescribable, settled peace. So he, he knew that in him uh, and returned to it later in his life. But the reason I think that story survived in the Buddhist canon is because it shows how ordinary these things are. They're not, they're not something that, that you go and polish up later. You, you've already got it. So I imagine if you gave yourself a few moments, you could probably recall times in your life when these minds have manifested in you. Uh, unbidden, they just arrived. And maybe they stayed a flash, maybe they stayed a long time. But that's, that's your own inherent awakened nature right there, coming to visit you. Our practice is not to try and create these mind states. It's simply to reduce the energy of the things in us that prevent us from seeing those mind states. It's a subtractive practice, ultimately, not an additive practice. And that, to me, is very liberating because so often we set these goals for ourselves and how do we ever achieve this stuff? We don't have anything to achieve in practice. Nothing, it's already there. In my practice, this is manifested in a, a kind of a symbol that's arisen for me over the years. So very often, I would be sitting on the cushion, and some aha happens. Wordless, sometimes it has, a, sometimes it has an understanding, but oftentimes it's just a kind of a... And what's followed me after that for a long time is a single sob that comes out of me. Just this sob, just one. And this has happened over and over and over and again. And the, and the vision that I have, the way I visualize this, is that 
inside of me, there's this great stone wall that's been built up around this awakened mind. And every once in a while, one of those stones falls out of the wall, and when it hits the ground, it vaporizes into this sob, and then it's gone. And over time, more and more of these stones have fallen out of the wall, and so those minds are more and more available to me. There's still plenty of stones there, and they continue to tumble out. Uh, I can't force them to tumble out. I can just come back to my practice, and just the grace of it, they tumble and vaporize. Um, but that's sort of how I visualize my practice and, and, and this process. So let's talk about now specifically loving kindness. We do a metta practice to help remove some of those stones around our awakened hearts. And as Westerners, we've inherited this practice from India and all the places that it's been practiced over the centuries. And it seems as though we've come up against a particularly difficult boundary as Westerners. And this was brought out in 1990, Sharon Salzberg, who's a, a teacher, insight teacher, who has made this the center of her practice and her teaching, this practice of metta. She was meeting with the Dalai Lama and a group of other Western teachers. This was in 1990. And she asked him a question. She said, well, what do we do about self-hatred? <laughs> and he uh, turned to his translator and, uh, what, what was that? <laughs> and, and, he, and he described and, and he kind of got clarification from her what, the, what she was talking about and he could not conceive of what that meant what self-hatred was um, and uh, you know, he, he said at one point I, I thought that I understood the human mind pretty well but now I think maybe I don't understand anything at all because I've never even considered that self-hatred was possible but it's endemic among us in the West and this is a real big stone in our wall that we, that we start with, that, that maybe they don't start with in Tibet, uh, where he began practicing. I have a couple of ideas about why this is so. Um, you know, one of the ideas that, that I have is that we live in a culture in which our potential is seen as limitless. We can do anything. We can be anything. We can acquire anything. We can be as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan. We can be as rich as Jeff Bezos. We can, all these things are in, in the myth of our culture, that all that is possible for us. And if we don't do those things, well, it's kind of our fault, right? I just should have thought of the idea that of st starting Amazon.com before Jeff Bezos did, and then I'd be that rich, right? <clears throat> so we have, because we have this unlimited idea that's what's possible for ourselves, we have no way of measuring when we've done enough. No way of knowing when we are enough. How much do we have to acquire? 
How good do we have to be? When can we possibly allow ourselves to be as we are in this moment? These are questions that as Westerners, we can't answer. Another thing that I think makes it hard for us to do this practice is we're trying to practice love in very hateful times. We are honing hatred to a high art form in our culture. You know, on one side of the political spectrum, people want, they, they want to exclude people for who they are. The other side of the political spectrum, we want to exclude people for what they believe. You know, in both cases, we want to exclude. We want to shun and condemn and drive away each other. We've got this self-hatred and we're projecting it onto others. We're finding all the reasons we can to hate other people. And I think that comes from our self-hatred. I think I've told this story before, but you know, I've, all my stories, I'll want to tell them over and over again because I don't have very many. <laughs> um, when I was in Vietnam, we visited a, a nunnery that was near Da Nang and had been destroyed during the war by bombs and rebuilt. And there was a man that was traveling with us that was a veteran of the war and he was a pilot of the planes that bombed in that area. Uh, and the abbess of this, of this uh, monastery, little tiny elderly Vietnamese woman, and this big American pilot, he, she, he came to her and he was devastated. You know, he wanted to apologize to her for this. He said, I, I may well have been the one who dropped the bombs that destroyed this. And she, she said, it's not your fault. You did what you thought was right. You did what your country taught you was right. And this, this monastery was destroyed because of our own karma. It's not your fault. And it, I saw that same reaction over and over and over again. That here I was, this American coming to Vietnam, and we met with people who had lost limbs due to uh, bombs left over in fields that they would hit with their plow and blow off their leg. We met children who had been um, genetically altered and had horrible birth defects. I mean, horrible beyond my ability to describe. Um, in none of these cases did I ever hear the hatred that we're manifesting in our culture. And so it showed me that there's something in us that, that is not necessarily in the Vietnamese people. So we have a pretty big stone in our wall. But that doesn't mean that these things are uh, insurmountable. We have a practice that can really help us. So there is a traditional practice of metta, of loving kindness, and I'd like to introduce that practice. <coughs> and I'm just going to be able to introduce it just barely because it's an extensive practice. And doing this practice can be a lifetime. But the way the practice works is that we 
we have phrases that we use to practice opening our hearts to this loving kindness that is within us. And then we, we take these phrases, we start by giving them to ourselves, and then we offer them to others, someone we love, someone we're neutral about, and finally someone who's caused us great pain. But what I'd like to suggest is that we take up this practice with no intention of going any farther than practicing for ourselves. It's my experience that you know when it's time to start including others. Um, you, you, the practice will teach you that, but to go too quickly is not good. It doesn't help. You, you just feel more guilt, uh, more like, oh, I got to do better than that. And, yeah. So the phrases are this. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. These are the four traditional phrases. So I'd like to um, suggest that we begin to take this practice up, each of us, uh, and that we do it every day. And this isn't a practice to figure out. It's not an intellectual practice. It's a practice simply to bring this, these words to mind and allow them to speak their meaning. Let them unfold themselves. You don't have to do anything. They will, they will reveal themselves. So it's just a matter of breathing in, may I be filled with loving kindness and breathing out. May I be filled with loving kindness. And then watching, watching what happens as you do that. Um, just as we took, just as we arrived home in every step, we don't do this practice to get anywhere. We do this practice just to breathe in. May I be filled with loving kindness. Breathe out. And trust that, that you are arriving in that state of mind right then. That's that's enough. So if you if you'd like, I'd like to lead us in a little bit of a guided meditation of what this might feel like and uh, as you practice this. So find a, a position that's reflective of your inherent dignity. When you put your body in an upright position, it reflects that you are already an awakened being. You are already a Buddha, already a Bodhisattva, and you sit like one with dignity. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be filled on the in-breath with loving-kindness on the out-breath.
Who is this I? What is the bodily experience of loving kindness? Who does this experience of loving kindness belong to? May I be well. Breathing in, may I. Breathing out, be well. What does wellness mean for me? Can I be well even when I'm unwell? May I be peaceful and at ease. Breathing in, may I be peaceful. Breathing out, may I be at ease. To be peaceful is to lay down all resistance. No more fighting. No more rejection. To be at ease is to give up all striving. to give up the idea that things need to be different. May I be happy. Breathing in, may I be. Breathing out, happy.
what is the true source of happiness? Can I feel happiness in this very moment? Trusting this practice to teach us to practice itself, to reveal itself. All we need to do is come back to our cushion, seat ourselves with dignity, and breathe in, may I be filled with loving kindness. You may also enjoy breathing in the difficulties, letting them rest in that vast bottomless well of loving kindness, and then breathing them out transformed. Breathing in the difficulty, allowing loving kindness to breathe it out transformed. Breathe in the difficulty, breathe out the loving kindness. This is a beautiful way to go through the day, breathing in the difficulty, breathing out love. No one has to know that you're doing it. Oh, please, please feel free to open your eyes and come back. So these are the words that I wanted to say about love. And I hope that we can, as a Sangha, practice love. But beginning always with ourselves. <laughs> 